after a few and quick announcements, we will continue our series. You see on the screen, Mind Games, How to Think for and About Yourself. But for the announcements, I want to clarify what Larry clarified in the announcements in the first hour, and that is a mistake, a very big mistake that's in your program about the beginning of our midweek ministries. Those are off for the summer. They'll resume on September the 16th, so under a month, but still a few weeks away. But the program says that they begin this Wednesday. And those who are leading ministries for midweek were panicking when they saw that. I had several people come to me and say, I'm not ready. And the good news is it's not starting then this this Wednesday, but rather on September 16th. So don't show up on Wednesday unless you are part of some of the ministry meetings that will be happening here uh, this Wednesday and the two following Wednesdays. We have a slate of meetings that are scheduled If you're part of those, you already know about it because you've already been invited. So if you haven't been invited, don't worry about it. Enjoy your Wednesday, your Wednesday off. This coming Saturday, men, there is a canoe trip and the, uh, the cost for that is listed in your program. It's $14 if you want your own canoe. It's $9 if you want to share a canoe with another guy. Uh, and you can register and need to register for that at the uh, resource center. And that's across the hall and into the uh, resource center room. And it's this Saturday, 7 a.m., meeting at Cracker Barrel in Belleville, and then after breakfast, proceed to Ann Arbor for the uh, a day of canoeing. And then on Wednesday, the 2nd of September, one week from this Wednesday, there's CPR training. That's for our security team, but also all of those who serve in our children's ministry. We encourage you to be there for that. On Labor Day, every year we have a picnic. So our Labor Day picnic will again be at the Lake Erie Metro Park. And uh, there's a cost. I, what did it go up to? Is it seven dollars? I think now to get in uh, for that. But uh, starts at noon, and we list in the program what we ask you to bring for that. So if you don't have plans for Labor Day, then uh, spend that time with us. Just two more announcements. Uh, on the 20th of September, we are going to have a fire drill, a safety drill, an evacuation drill uh, here uh, that our security team is going to uh, lead. Uh, it'll be the last 15 minutes of this hour. So we will end this hour on that day at 11.45. And for those final 15 minutes, the security team will explain, in the case we ever had an emergency where we had to evacuate, uh, what we would do uh, from this room. They'll explain what the teachers are trained to do for the uh, for the children. And then we will actually evacuate. We'll actually go outside. And uh, the kids will go out the doors they're supposed to go out, and we'll all kind of meet up. Now, that's weather permitting. If it's bad weather, I'm not evacuating, okay? Even if it's a real em- emergency, I'm not leaving if it's, if it's bad weather. So weather permitting, then we will uh, be outside, and that will be the end of our day together. So if you already have your stuff, then you can just get to your car and, and go. And then lastly, on the 27th, last Sunday of September, we'll start a new series in this hour called Marriage Matters. So for those of you that are interested in uh, in improving your marriage, uh then, and if you're married, you ought to be, then I encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, that will be, as I say, during this hour, starting September 27th. Those of you uh, who are not, who have given up on your marriage, who don't care about your marriage anymore, uh, we have a second class going on simultaneous with that, and that is how we got our Bible, and Dr. Combs is going to be teaching that in another part of the building. So we'll have both of those classes going on, how we got our Bible and the uh, Marriage Matters class. All right. This class that we've been in now, this will be the seventh session. 
is, as you see on the screen, called Mind Games, How to Think for and About Yourself. And the idea of this is for us to focus on an area of sanctification that is often neglected. Now, I say sanctification. Sanctification, the word means to be set apart. It's the process of being set apart from the world and to God. It's a synonym is spiritual growth or discipleship, becoming more like Christ. All of these are synonymous with moving from where we are to progress in the Christian walk. And one of the neglected areas of the Christian walk, unfortunately, is the way we think, the use of our our minds. And in prior weeks now, I've tried to point out how dangerous it is that we neglect this area of our thought processes and how we think about ourselves and how we think about others and how we think about God and how we think about our circumstances. And today I want to, I want to focus on then some mechanics of, of, of thinking. In particular, I want to focus on what the Bible calls discernment. Discernment. Using our minds, using our thinking faculties in order to discern, as you will see as we go, that means to choose between what is best and better. It is to be able to look at two or more options and to, to, gain the ability uh, to decide and choose which is best. The Bible speaks of the need for discernment and the need of applying our thoughts and our minds to that task of, of discerning. But because in Christian circles, all too often, the mind is deprecated, the thinking process is deprecated, and you, you, you say, really, is that true? It, it is true. In fact, I'll prove it to you as we go. I'm going to give you some reasons why, for so many people, this issue of how we think leading to how we discern is not given proper attention. And one of those reasons are are spiritual reasons. There are Christian reasons, Christians who give these reasons as to uh, why this is not necessary or why it's not a priority. The Bible places great emphasis on the use of the mind and in the processing of spiritual truth through the mind. The scriptures teach that thought precedes action. Or to put it another way, belief determines behavior. What you think determines what you do. What you believe determines how you behave. And that's why Paul then commands, the Bible commands, to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of what? By the renewing of your mind. And, and importantly, in another passage in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, A chapter devoted, some of you know, to the issue of spiritual gifts and in particular the issue of speaking in tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues. But in that chapter that's devoted to that, a full 40 verses devoted to that issue, in the midst of that discussion, here's what the Bible says. I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. Now, it's important that that's included in the midst of that discussion because what happens very often amongst those who have a focus upon extraordinary uh, spiritual gifts is that the mind is sometimes bypassed. The idea is that the Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, operates directly on your spirit, bypassing the mind. 
And one of the reasons that Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 14, includes what I just read, that if I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray not only with the Spirit, but I'm praying with the mind. If you're not praying with the mind, then you're not praying in the Spirit. And if I'm going to sing with the Spirit, that's going to include my mind. So Paul, who wrote that, is instructing the Corinthians to say there is no spiritual bypass of the mind. That the processing of spiritual truth and engaging in spiritual activities and all activities actually is to involve the mind by God's design. And so we are not mystics. I will define mysticism formally in just a little bit. But for now, I'm not. And so I'm telling you, you're not. Okay, you're not a mystic either. But in general, the idea is a, is a mystic believes that spiritual truth comes bypassing the mind from God, from the spirit directly to the individual spirit. And so as a result then of the Bible, though, putting great emphasis on the use of the mind, being not conformed to the world, but renewing your mind. If I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray with my mind. If I'm going to sing, I'm going to sing with my mind. So Christians, one author says, have no good grounds for rejecting reason. Christians cannot grasp God's truth without the use of this divinely given ability to reason. The fact that God, in his sovereignty, chose to express his truth to us in rational words and ideas demonstrates that he intends for us to use our reasoning ability. So you are not more spiritual if you think less. And I grew up, and I'm not trying to bash my Pentecostal friends because much of my family, as you know, is Pentecostal. I grew up Pentecostal. My dad was a Pentecostal pastor. So I'm not bashing that. But in, in that theological system, the idea that you don't need to think things through, the Spirit just does things, is very popular. And it was something that I was exposed to in my, in my upbringing. In fact, so much so, just to give you an illustration, that when I was growing up, we never had an order of service. Never. It was considered to be unspiritual to have an order of service. Now, when we have our worship service, we have an order to it. We're going to do this first. We're going to do that next. We're going to do that next. We've already planned that. Okay. We consider that to be a spiritual thing for us to do. But when I was growing up, it was considered an unspiritual thing to do because you need to let the spirit move and the spirit have his way. This is the kind of language we would we would use. And so the services would go on until the spirit was done, which meant, hey, you guys are, you think I preach long? You're glad you're here, okay? <laughs> when I was a kid, those services went for hours. And we had those services on Sunday nights, school the next day, and those services, and I'm not making this up, those services would go to 10, 1030 at night, as long as the spirit was moving. Now, something I noticed about the Spirit moving, at least in our church, our Pentecostal church, was the Spirit tended to move as long as the music was playing. I noticed this as a young person. I'm not, because I went to a Baptist high school and I went to a Pentecostal church. So, no wonder I'm so messed up. So I'm at this Baptist school and they're telling me, you know, the stuff you guys are doing is really, that's not the way it's supposed to be done. And, you know, every week. And so I'm trying to figure this out. And so I'm watching very closely as a teenager. And one of the things I remember noticing as a teenager was the spirit was moving and people were shouting and people were running the aisles and so on while the instruments were playing. But when the instrument guys got tired, the spirit gets tired too. It just sort of peters out after after that. 
And it suggested to me that maybe this is not just all direct spirit going on here. That maybe if the band is really whomping it up, then you can really get the crowd kind of whomped up. Okay? So this issue of the mind is one that the Bible places great emphasis on, but there are a lot of movements within evangelical Christianity that do not. The priority of the mind has been deprecated by many well-meaning believers. And the result is, in the words of a guy named Harry Blamires, he wrote a book called The Christian Mind, and here's what he says. There is no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, and a Christian spirituality. As a moral being, the modern Christian subscribes to a code other than that of the non-Christian. As a member of the church, he undertakes obligations and observations ignored by the non-Christian. As a spiritual being, in prayer and meditation, he strives to cultivate a dimension of life unexplored by the non-Christian. But as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion, that is, its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture, but he rejects the religious view of life. The view that sets all earthly issues in the context of the eternal. The view which relates all human problems, social, political, and cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith. The view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy and earth's transitoriness. In terms of heaven and of hell. That's a great statement. That that's the way Christians are to view the world. They're to view the world through a biblical view of the world. A biblical worldview. But for many Christians, there is no such view, and there has been no such view cultivated. We come to church, he says. We accept religion and the morality and the worship and the spiritual culture, but the religious view of life that gives you the lenses through which you see everything and process everything rationally and with the faculty of reason that God has given us, for too many Christians, that doesn't happen. And so I want to go through why that's the case, what I call the decline of the Christian mind, And then the rise of the Christian mind. Why has the Christian mind declined for so many people? And what can be done about it? What should we do as individuals to cultivate the life of the mind for ourselves? Well, there are some religious reasons and there are also cultural reasons that the life of the mind has is not a priority. The religious reasons include the myth of neutrality, the myth of neutrality. And what I mean by the myth of neutrality is too many Christians not being immersed in God's word, not being exposed to God's word on a regular basis, do not have a full understanding of the stark antithesis that God states in the Bible between things like the believer and the unbeliever, between light and darkness, between truth and error, between right and wrong. Throughout the Bible, you have these antitheses, you have these opposites. But for too many Christians, there is the the myth of neutrality. And the only way you can adopt this myth that that the world is not as bad as it could be, or, or is, that 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 things are not as starkly contrasted as the Bible states them, is for you to fail to understand, like I'm afraid many Christians do fail to understand, that God is what one calls contra mundum. That's Latin for against the world. That God is against the world. Now, it doesn't mean he's against the people in the world. But it means he's against the cosmos. That's the Greek word in your New Testament that's translated world. And it means the arrangement of this world, the system of values and affections that is set against God 
and his purposes. And so there is this antithesis between God and the world. God is contra mundum. And how do you know that there is this antithesis between God and the world? Well, in Scripture. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 17 in this prayer the night before he died. He said, Father, they are in the world, but they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They are in the world, but not of it. Romans 12.2 says to be not conformed to this world but be transformed. In John, or excuse me, in James chapter 4 and James chapter 1 first, James chapter 1 and verse 26. Religion that God our Father accepts is this. To keep oneself unspotted from the world. And then in James chapter 4 and verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is spiritual adultery? is enmity against God, says the the King James. And then in 1 John chapter 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. I mean, over and over again, the Bible makes it very clear that God is not neutral with regard to the world. And so the Christian is not to be on easy terms with the world. The Christian is not to be worldly. A worldly Christian, in a biblical sense, is a contradiction in terms. We are not to be of the world system and the world's values and the world's affections. And the Bible warns against that over and over. But if someone's not immersed in Scripture and seeing that antithesis regularly, then we will subscribe to the myth of neutrality and find ourselves on easy terms with the world. Here's another reason, religious reason, is that we fail to understand uh, the relationship between common grace and total depravity. Common grace and total depravity. Now, what do I mean by that? Total depravity is the teaching, the biblical teaching, that every part of the individual has been affected by sin, his mind, his will, and his emotion. He's totally sinful. Now, it doesn't mean that every individual commits as much sin as possible, thankfully. If every individual committed as much sin as possible, then this place would be unlivable. This world would be unlivable. It doesn't mean that each individual is as bad as they possibly could be. But here's one of the reasons that the Bible gives that the world is not worse than it is. I mean, the world's bad enough, but it would be much worse if it were not for God's common grace. So what is common grace? Common grace as opposed to special grace. Special grace is that grace that is specially bestowed upon God's people. Those that God reaches down and he saves and he rescues. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been the recipient of God's special saving grace. But then there is there is common grace. That's grace that everybody experiences and everybody commonly benefits from. And common grace comes in the form of things like, believe it or not, government. Did you know God gave government? When we get to Genesis chapter 9 in our series in Genesis during the first hour, we will see the institution of of human government in Genesis chapter 9. God instituted government. And in, in Romans chapter 13 in your Bible, the Bible says that those who are governing authorities are given to us for our good. And they are to restrain evil and to punish the wrongdoer. Now, absent that, institution of God's common grace, look out, right? 
That's one avenue of God's grace that's given to the world and everybody in the world experiences that measure of grace in common. Another one is this, the presence of Christians. I'm convinced that the presence of Christians and the Holy Spirit in Christians is a preservative and is an aspect of God's common grace in his world. And I'm also convinced that there's going to be a removal of those Christians prior to the worst time in human history. That's what Jesus said. He said there will be a time of tribulation and it will be a time such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world. The seven-year tribulation. But I'm convinced that Christians are going to be removed in what is called the, the rapture. And so I believe in a pre prior to the tribulation rapture. And I also believe that that's one of the very reasons that the world will be almost uninhabitable then. Because you do not have the restraint of the Holy Spirit and the preservative of Christians. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And so though a minority, believe me, this world, this world will rue the day. And all unbelievers will rue the day that they rejected Christians and, mo- and most of all rejected the Lord of those Christians. But because God does give his common grace and does restrain the effects of total depravity, then we can be lulled into thinking things aren't that bad. And, and, and people aren't that bad. And therefore, I don't really need to think about and analyze these issues as intensely as the Bible bids us to do. And so there we become, as I say, kind of on easy terms with the world and sort of a neutrality develops. So that's one religious reason that the mind and the life of the mind is not cultivated as it ought to be. The myth of neutrality, forgetting that God is contramundum, forgetting the relationship between common grace and total depravity. But here's another one, mysticism that I mentioned earlier. And the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines the mysticism this way, a form of religious practice which seeks direct knowledge of God rather than an intellectual knowledge of him. A form of religious practice that seeks direct knowledge of God rather than an intellectual knowledge of him. So it's the bypassing of the mind, not the intellectual knowledge of him, but a direct experience with God where God directly impacts impacts your spirit. As I mentioned, our Pentecostal and charismatic friends uh, have a, a heavy dose of, of mysticism. But there are lots of Christians who aren't you know, Pentecostal and, and charismatic who still think in mystical sorts of ways. You know, when you have you ever heard decision-making described this way? That you know the right decision when you have a piece about it? When you've got, and what that translates into is when you have a good feeling about it. Okay. So when I get done with this mind game series, here's the next series I think I'm going to do. Might just it's a short lesson that I have on decision making and the will of God. And the proper approach to decision making, a biblical approach to decision making, but I've got three common but erroneous approaches. And one of them is the feeling oriented approach. But many non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal people have this kind of feeling oriented approach to decision making. I know it's the right decision if I if I have a piece about it. That somehow in my feelings, God has has confirmed it. But our feelings, of course, can fool us. And a decision is good or bad, not based upon how you feel about it, but based upon the facts upon which that decision is based. The truth upon which that decision is, is based. 
So mysticism is another religious reason for the decline of the Christian mind. Pietism, that's a third reason. Pietism, what is that? Pietism is, quote, a variety of Christianity that emphasizes personal experience. One author says pietism can lead to inordinate subjectivism and emotionalism, and it can discourage careful scholarship. And so you get people who are pietistic. They don't, they don't know the word. They don't know the pietistic, pietistic movement in church history. There was such a movement. They don't know what that is. They don't know that word, but they're pietists anyway. And one way you know a pietist is if they come into a place like this and they hear a guy like me yapping the way I'm yapping now. And I'm giving this lecture and I'm, te- and I'm teaching you and you're supposed to be listening and you're supposed to be thinking about what I'm talking about. That pietist is going, this isn't church. Where's the spiritual aspect of all of this? There's supposed to be some emotion going on here. Okay. Or if they came in the first hour in our worship service for a person who's a pietist, you haven't worshipped until there's an obvious display of emotion within within the congregation. Now, emotion is God-given. Emotion is good. Emotion should be expressed in worship. It's all good. But it's not the defining element like it is for a pietist. And here's a, another religious reason, a fourth one, for the decline of the Christian mind. And that is what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Now, some of you know a little bit about church history, but you know about 100 years ago there was this thing called that, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Very briefly, what that uh, entailed was mainline denominations toward the end of the 19th century and going into the beginning of the 20th century, early 1900s, Mainline denominations and their schools had begun to reject cardinal truths of the Christian faith. Things like the virgin birth were no longer believed in some of the mainline seminaries. Things like the inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible is from God and it has been delivered to us with, without error. It was, was being denied and it was being denied uh, across the board. So you had people who were genuine Christians, who were Bible believers, who believed in these fundamentals of the Christian faith, and thus the name, who left those mainline denominations and started their own institutions. If I ever get this paper finished for my doctor of ministry degree, I finished the classwork a long time ago. I've got to get the stupid paper done. But if I ever get it done, then I will have a degree from a place called Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Now, I bring that up for this reason. Westminster started in 1932 because a guy named J. Gresham Machen and some other brilliant scholars left Princeton Seminary in New Jersey to begin Westminster Theological Seminary because they were fundamentalists in that they believed in these fundamentals of the faith. They rejected the teachings that were happening within the Presbyterian mainline denomination of which Princeton was a part. And they left there to start their own school, Westminster. And many, many others did the same kind of thing. The Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which is now Biola University, started as a result of moving out of a mainline denomination to start a Bible-believing institute for Christians to learn. So what does that have to do with the decline, though, of the Christian mind? What happened over time is that, unfortunately, fundamentalists became, and I consider myself a fundamentalist in in the historic use of that term, 
in believing the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Most definitely. But over time, fundamentalists became very suspicious of scholarship. They became suspicious of book learning, of academics. We don't need that. We don't need that training. We've seen what that does. It spoils people. It leads to these erroneous things. And so we, and so we reject, many rejected that. And as a result, in many Baptist churches, our church is Community Bible Church, but we are a Baptist church in terms of our belief. In many fundamental Baptist churches, you don't have to be a Baptist to be a fundamentalist, but, but many Baptist churches are fundamentalists, fundamental Baptist churches. And in many of those, that rejection has meant that there is no, there is, there's little emphasis upon the life of the mind and upon teaching and upon scholarship. And the result of that has been that biblical truth is often compartmentalized from other truth then. People show up on Sunday, but there's not an integration of the truth that they learn on Sunday with everything that they're supposed to be doing on, on Monday through, through Saturday. Well, these are religious reasons for the decline of the Christian mind. Let me give you some cultural reasons. Some cultural reasons. One is the connotations of the kind of terminology that we use to describe thinking. Here's some of the terminology. Uh, to make choices, to think, another word for that is to discriminate. To be discriminating. Now think about culturally how the word discrimination is used. It's a bad word, we think. The truth is discrimination is actually a good word. The problem is not with being discriminating. The problem is the basis upon which you discriminate. Racial discrimination is bad. So to distinguish between someone simply because of the color of their skin, that's to to make a, a, a judgment, an evaluation on a false, a faulty basis. But to discriminate based upon right and wrong, good and evil is certainly correct. But the connotation of the terminology is such that people shy away from it. Or criticism. From the Greek word krites, to make a judgment. Again, criticism often has a negative connotation to it because criticism is often used negatively, done negatively. But to be a critic is actually a good thing if done right because you're making a a criticism, an evaluation, a judgment about something. Another cultural reason that people don't think well in our churches and the mind, the life of the mind has declined is a, is the general decline of education in our society. The general decline of education. I mean, people have more degrees today, but that doesn't mean people are more well educated today. It's not the same thing. And George Orwell, you guys know that name? From 1984. But he, uh, here's a quote from George Orwell. He says, We have now sunk to such a depth that the restatement of the obvious is the first duty of all intelligent men. The restatement of the obvious is the first duty of all intelligent people. So the decline of, of education means there's a decline in general in our, in our world. And then, the last one, the last cultural reason is this, the, the mixing up of pluralism and relativism. Pluralism and relativism. I've mentioned this distinction to you before, but I'll do so again quickly. Pluralism, we live in a pluralistic society, meaning 
that people have freedom of expression, freedom of speech. It's pluralistic in that there are a variety of of uh, ideas that can be expressed and every citizen has the right to express his or her own ideas. So it's pluralism. That's a good thing that we live with the freedom to do that. That gives me the freedom to do what we're doing here for us to express our Christian viewpoint. So there's pluralism, but sometimes that then gets mixed up with relativism. Pluralism says everybody has a right to their own ideas. But relativism says this, all ideas are equally valid. And those are not the same thing. Having the right, everyone having the right to express their ideas, pluralism, is not the same thing as saying all ideas are therefore equally valid. That's relativism. But in our culture, you easily slide from the one to the other. Now, that's the decline of the Christian mind. What about the rise of the Christian mind? What can be done for us to to cultivate it? Well, one thing that we need to do is understand what spiritual discernment biblically is. So let me spend some time talking about what spiritual discernment is. It can be defined this way. It's the divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and ways from all others. Spiritual discernment is this, the divinely given ability. An ability given by God. Because only Christians have spiritual discernment. The divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and God's ways from all others. Now, notice that means making a choice. That means seeing the difference. Key word in that definition is to distinguish. And you're distinguishing God's thoughts and God's ways from all others. In the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word used 247 times, and it refers to the process by which one comes to know or understand God's thoughts and ways through separating those things that are different. In the New Testament, there's a Greek word that is used for discernment. It has the idea that through the use of separating discrimination, a person is to make judgments and decisions about all things. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15, 1 Corinthians 2:15. The Bible says the spiritual man evaluates or judges all things. This requires spiritual judgment. In Philippians chapter 1, uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 10, Philippians 1 and verse 10. As Paul who wrote that is telling the Philippians to whom he is writing how he prays for them, he tells them that one of the ways I pray for you is that you will learn to, quote, discern what is best. Choose what is best. And this discernment, that is this divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and God's ways from all others, is obtained by a developmental process. It's not just spiritual whiffle dust that's thrown on you and all of a sudden you're discerning. So it's not the moment that you pray the prayer and, you, and you're saved. Now all of a sudden I'm a discerning, mature Christian. Maturity by its very nature takes time to happen. And discernment happens through a developmental process. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14. Hebrews 5.14. Hebrews 5.14. Strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even to those who by reason of use 
have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Now note, by reason of use, by reason of practice, that's what it's saying. It's a developmental process that as someone learns to discern, that's a great phrase, learn to discern. In fact, that's actually the title of this lesson. Learning to discern, though, is something that you practice. And you practice daily and you practice weekly as you read the newspaper, as you converse with people, as you watch the television, as you consider propositions and events and things that are going on. And you process those through a biblical worldview. You sift those through the mind that God has given you and the mind that God has shaped so that you can distinguish his thoughts and ways from everything else you're being presented with. If we have that kind of thing going on regularly in our personal lives, then the aggregate of that is that's going on then in God's church, God's comprised of God's people. And then you have churches then that are discerning. They're not just feeling oriented. It's not just, you know, the happy, radiant Baptist fellowship. You know, where we just we all just love each other, and we do all just love each other. I'm, I'm all for, in favor of love, okay? But I'm, I'm not just in favor of the social club approach to church. The social and relational aspect of God's church is, is very pronounced in, in the New Testament. It's very important. But friends, there is nothing more important, nothing more important than God's truth. Nothing. How do I know this? You need go no further than to consider that the great apostle, when he knew he was going to leave this earth, when his time was at hand, when he was penning the final letter that we have in the New Testament from the apostle Paul, and he is in prison, and shortly after writing this, he is going to be beheaded for the gospel. And he says famously in the last chapter of that last letter, the time of my departure is at hand. Some of you know this. I've run the race and I have kept the faith. You remember that, don't you? But do you remember that just a few verses before that? To his young protege, Timothy, to whom he is writing in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in verse 2, in the last chapter of the last letter that he would write, here's what he says to Timothy. Preach the word. That's what he says. Preach the word. Does that tell you what Paul's priorities were? This is the last thing he's telling Timothy. Whatever you do, Timothy, preach the word. And if we've got people who are exercising on a regular basis the faculty of the mind, thinking God's thoughts after him and distinguishing God's thoughts and ways from all others, practicing this, learning to discern, then we will have churches of discerning people. And people who appreciate then what God appreciates. And want what God wants. Rather than what the culture, even the religious culture, tells us we should want. So that's what discernment is. Divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and ways from all others. Now, the last part of my suggestions for how we develop this, I can continue next week because I have about 60 seconds left.
But I will, I will give you one of the uh, suggestions I have, and then most of next week will be devoted to uh, how, we devoid, how we avoid thinking in illogical ways, how we cultivate the use of the reasoning faculty that God has given us so that we use it in appropriate ways, logical ways. So I'll deal with that next week. We'll deal with a bunch of logical fallacies that people easily fall, fall into. But for now, I'll just mention one prior to the logical fallacies, and that is we must regularly, friends, if we're going to cultivate spiritual discernment, we must regularly think antithetically, antithetically, antithesis. That is, we must think in terms of of stark contrasts. Because the Bible presents these stark contrasts over and over and over again between good and evil, between right and wrong, between truth and error, between light and darkness, between the world and the church, between believer and unbeliever. The Bible presents these contrasts, these antitheses over and over. So one of the things that we've got to learn to do then is to think antithetically. Think to ourselves, to what does this apply? Is this, is this a product of the world? Is this a product of truth? Is this the product of right? Is this the product of light or darkness? Constantly thinking in these antithetical ways that the Bible presents. Now, I'll give some examples and hopefully some helps of how to do that next week. So if we're going to engage in the mind games and if we're going to win the mind game, God has given us our mind as this good, as this good thing, good faculty for us to reason and process his truth and appropriate his truth and then put his truth into practice in our lives. But it is not to happen bypassing the thinking process. The thinking process from God's standpoint must happen every moment of every day for the Christian. We'll continue that next week. Let's ask God to help us, okay? Father, thank you for giving us the faculties that you've provided for us as your image bearers, as a rational, thinking being, our God decides and determines and plans and then executes those plans and designs his world and has designed us to resemble you in a personal way, to have a personal resemblance to the God who made us. And that includes our thinking ability. So, Lord, we thank you that you are the omniscient God, the all-knowing God, that you are the, the, the thinking and rational and reasoning God that has made us to do likewise. And so, Lord, help us to cultivate then this good faculty that you have given to each of us to appropriate your truth, to process your truth, to apply your truth. Help us, Lord, to never be guilty, even inadvertently, of, of deprecating this, this mechanism that you have provided for us to to integrate your truth into our, our lives and thereby live in a way that has effect on others and glorifies you. Lord, we ask you to go with us this week as we interact in all the ways that you have assigned to us. But help us to do so, Lord, mindful, thoughtful, in thinking ways, looking at what the opportunities are that you have presented looking at the, the contrast between the world that you've called us to, to minister to and minister in and what you've called us to be as your people and your church. Lord, help there to not be muddled thinking this week as we go about serving you as your ambassadors. Help us to see 
that we are the privileged, the marvelously privileged people that Christians are called out of the world and to God. A minority, to be sure, but on the winning team. Help us, Lord, to distinguish your thoughts and ways from all others this week and bring us back safely next week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.